right. Welcome back to the Building a Fighter podcast. My name is Dr. Austin Shane, sports chiropractor in Scottsdale, Arizona. With me, as always, badass strength coach in Denver, Colorado, Alex Friedman. How you doing, Alex? Doing great today. It's uh, Dude, been a beautiful day. Your hair looks better every time I see you. I'm not going to lie. Well, thank you for that. It's flowing. I do almost next to nothing for it. So <laughs> uh, Today... I'm excited. We got a guest, uh, somebody I've been working with, an amazing guy. He is a mental performance. What what exactly, what's your title that you would prefer, Darren, mental performance coach? I think that's the easiest way to explain it. Yes. I like it. So we have Darren Treasure. So I'm going to dive in. I'm going to let Darren talk a little bit about himself, but he is, me and Darren co-treat some athletes um, and he's an overall, just an amazing person. I've learned a bunch from him. So Darren, take it away. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you, Austin. Um, so uh, for 10 years, I was a university professor, research professor at the University of Illinois and Arizona State University. And then after that decade, I decided to branch out and just consult full time. So since 2004, um, I've been working with athletes, teams, organizations, national governing bodies, both domestically and internationally on various uh, projects related to performance, culture, leadership, a lot of coach education. Um, so that's really my background. Um, I've had the opportunity to work with some absolutely incredible athletes, Olympic and world champions in multiple sports. I mean, athletes that have won the Super Bowl, played in the NBA finals, um, two or three members of the women's national soccer team that won multiple world cups. Um, been fortunate to work in a broad variety of sports and being part of support staffs that have covered the full gamut from strength and conditioning to um, biomechanics, you know, virtually every physiologist. So, so that's basically my background. Nice. And you also, so where that's with that killer accent, where originally are you from in Great Britain? Originally from England, um, from God's country, the West country. Um, I was born in a, a little, little village called Chipping Sodbury, which uh, other than me being born there, the other claim to fame is uh, J.K. Rowling was born there. So, uh, and it has more pubs per square foot of the city center than any, any village in uh, England. So that's the three claims. To- I think you awesome. take the cake on that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, where we went to college, it's funny that you say that because where we went to college in La Crosse, Wisconsin, had the most pubs or bars per square block of any college town in the there U.S. Go, so. Yeah. Perfect. Fun, fun city. <laughs> yeah, I've been, I've been to Madison a few times when I was at Illinois. So for you to actually have more bars, that's pretty exceptional. Yeah, they oh. do. They do drink and write in Wisconsin. Yes, <laughs> it was. It was the biggest. What was it? The biggest uh, Oktoberfest in the Midwest. Like, there's like like MLB players would come to our little town and hang out, and our it there it literally our population would quadruple for a weekend. It's nuts. <laughs> But enough about lacrosse. So, Darren, so you originally, so we're building a fighter. You've worked with the Illinois wrestling team. That's actually where you kind of, one of the things you started with, right? Yeah, I think I mentioned to you that when I was, so after I finished my PhD, um, I was fortunate to be kept on at Illinois initially as a visiting professor. And I taught an applied sports psychology class. It was a 200 level class. And at the end of the second week uh, of classes, this uh, guy came up to me and he said, um, I think you can help me. And and, and at that time, I hadn't done any consulting with any, um, you know, I played at a pretty high level in the sports I played, which is really why I got into the field of therapy, to understand myself and why I'd come up short. 
Um, 100%. And so he comes up and, and I said, well, sure, more than happy to help. What do you do? And he said, I'm a wrestler. And I looked at him and uh, I said, at, at that time, my only frame of reference was like WWE. I had, had you know, the whole idea <laughs> of Olympic wrestling or Greco-Roman. I mean, that had never even crossed my mind. Not a big spectator sport in the UK growing up. Yeah. So I looked at him and I said, you're a bit small, aren't you, for a wrestler? And he said, no, well, actually, I'm very big for my weight class. And I looked at him, the logical question was, there are weight classes? He goes, yes, there are weight classes. And so we started talking and he said, look, I'm number two in the country at the moment. I'm a senior. I'm a two-time All-American. I think you can help give me the edge to win a national championship, which is really my goal. Um, so that was Steve Marinetti. So Steve ended up winning a national championship that year, beating Lincoln McAravey in Iowa City. And in, in, I have always argued the biggest upset in the history of NCAA sports oh, that, yeah. no one really, that no one really knows about. Because I can remember sitting down with Steve over coffee but the next day, and I said, tell me a little bit about the number one guy. And he said, oh, you know, he's 172 and 0. He hasn't <laughs> lost since, you know, he's never lost, you know. And I go, 172 and 0? He goes, yeah, well, he started wrestling, you know, in middle school and he's never lost. And, he co- <laughs> and he's coached by a guy who never lost. And I'm like, oh, okay. So not too much of a task then. Really. Yeah, not <laughs> a big hill to climb. Like and, and, the, and, the, and nationals are in his hometown, which I presume – There'll be a lot of supporters there. He says, oh, yeah, there'll be 16,000 people there all supporting him. Oh. <laughs> so, oh, okay. Yeah. So somebody that could probably benefit from a little bit of mental coaching and being able to handle that. So, yeah, so, that, so that, was, that was really the introduction. And then you know, over the course of the next four years, I worked with Illinois' wrestling program with their coaching staff. Mark Johnson was the head coach. Jim Heffernan was the, was, the, uh, was the lead assistant coach. And I was lucky enough to work with, I mean, at the time we, we were very – Fortunate to have a, a number of national champions and all Americans, and the team was pretty good. And yeah, so that was my introduction to fighting per se, and and you know, the sport of wrestling. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I mean, I think as an individual based sport like wrestling, fighting, MMA, it's all makes it that much more high stakes, right? Because you're out there alone, and it's all on your shoulders. Um, but that uh, story is kind of a perfect lead into what my first question was on more of the practical side. And now that you've had all this consulting experience and you've done just wonderful things in your career, in your experience, when is it a good time for an athlete to seek out a mental performance coach or how as an athlete would I come to that realization that I, I should employ someone like yourself or I should start venturing down this rabbit hole of more mental performance than maybe what I'm already working on? Well, I mean, if we, if we think about athletic development, irrespective of sport, I mean, we typically break it into, you know, big chunks, right? So we say, okay, there's technique. We've got to develop the technical ability, tactical awareness, performance IQ, whatever terminology you want to use. And then there's the physical piece. And the piece that we always talk about, but people don't necessarily do anything about is the mental piece. So if we look at a performance pie, which is just sort of the simplest way to look at it, my question is always, you know, how much time are you devoting to each element within that performance pie? Yeah. And typically, we spend all of our time, technique or physical. That's where most kids spend all of their time. My belief is that if you have the perfect model, uh, which is in place some, in some places in Europe, in particular in academy-based programs, is you integrate all four pieces in, in the developmental process you know that the technique needs to come first because that's the foundational building block 
then you know that may, maybe in many ways the physical piece is the one that you, you know, particularly in the male side, you want to take full advantage of puberty and testosterone and getting all of those, you know, in inbuilt advantages we have just through growth and puberty. But also it's like having an emphasis on or an awareness of the mental piece is also hugely, hugely important. The way I look at it with the elite level athletes I work with is that they see me as just another one of their support staff. Um, Why would they not employ somebody who works on the mental side when so much of what they do, particularly when it matters most, is mental? Um, You know, you've got a situation where Typically, I mean, if I if I look at you know the, the you know MMA stuff and boxing and com- combat sports at the highest level, is there really that much of a difference physically, technically, and the understanding of what they need to do in a fight? How much of it comes down to an a, an accumulated foundation of confidence and understanding and awareness and being able to control the emotions and to be able to do all of the things that we know can enhance development and performance. And oftentimes it's more about that piece than it is necessarily about the other pieces. So you see people who dedicate an inordinate amount of time to becoming the best they can possibly be physically, the best they can possibly be technically, the most aware they can be in terms of the tactics of what they're actually going to do in the fight. But then they forget about the piece that perhaps holds it all together. This is sort of the sinew that holds it all together. They either expect it just to evolve out of the physical training. I trained really, really hard. Therefore, I feel super, super confident. And there is definitely an element of that. But then when you walk into the competitive arena, all of a sudden that could all go out the window because some random negative thought comes pinging into your head and you don't know how to deal with it. And then it overwhelms everything. And now all of a sudden you're you're paralyzed and you're not able to do any of the things that your training would suggest you're capable of doing. For sure. And you see it all the time where it's everybody knows that guy in the gym. That's a murderer. Like he in practice, he's the hardest, hardest worker. He's the best person. Like we have a couple of guys at fight ready that I know that they could put out the best guys in the world if they step into a cage with them in sparring. But as soon as they go under the bright lights, they don't, they don't know how to, whether it's manage their thoughts, manage the performance expectations, whatever it may be, but they don't know how to, I guess, go about that situation and the lights get them and they can't ever show off all the skills they have. So is, is there, what would be the first step for people that are looking to get into that? What, what's the first thing they should think about? Is, is it managing thoughts or as, a, as an athlete? Yeah. Just as an athlete, what, what would be in, in their head? What, I guess, what would they think about as far as trying to think through a situation or prepare themselves for a situation? Well, one of the, one of the approaches I take with all my athletes is that these thoughts, these feelings, they're coming at you thick and fast, particularly if you're in an, in an event that you really care about, that you've invested a lot of time in, that you value immensely. So the number one thing, it used to be that people used to always talk about, well, block off those negative thoughts, block off of those doubts. Well, we, we absolutely know now um, that that is not the approach that really is the most successful. It's rather accepting that these thoughts are coming, acknowledging them. Rec- yeah, that, that's real. I'm, I'm, I'm maybe a little bit nervous or I'm, you know, I'm not hundred percent certain that I can actually do this, but then the key thing then is what do you do next? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, one of the things that I've become extremely 
um, aware of, and I use it in my practice with all my athletes, is just teaching people how to breathe. Um, just it, it, so Because when you breathe, the first thing you do is things begin to slow down. You drive oxygen to your brain, which makes you a better decision maker. And then after you've done that, it also makes sure that you're more present. Because that's the other thing that I, I teach all my athletes is um, there's a rugby coach in, uh, in New Zealand and the All Blacks are the most successful international team in any sport over the last decade. Um, and their current coach is a guy called Steve Hansen. And um, actually, I think he may have just retired, but he, he has been for the last few years. And he has the, 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 the whole idea of your head needs to be where your feet are because you're never going to be able to play at the level you're capable of if your head's not where your feet are. And so the visual I always say to athletes is, well, think about that for a moment. Your feet are grounded in the here and now. If your head is dealing with something that has already happened, so you're stuck in the past, your body is not going to be able to do what it's capable of doing. Same way if it's suddenly thinking about the future and getting caught up in things that could happen, you're not going to be able to perform at the level you're capable of performing at. So it's really about how do we stay present? Breathing is a really good way of doing this. You know, it's very, I mean, obviously at the moment, there's lots of conversation about mindfulness. In my practice, mindfulness for the sake of mindfulness is a total waste of time because if all you're doing is just i'm being more mindful that's that's awesome fantastic my thing about it is, <laughs> is it's mindful with a function and for me and what i do it's mindful with the function of being a better performer so it's always about you know we we're, we're being mindful we work on our mindfulness all the time we work on our breathing so that when you get to those moments, instead of pushing back all of these thoughts and feelings, you sort of lean into them a little bit. You sort of embrace the suck. You embrace it, and then you act. So you nudge yourself back to the present, and then you go back to, okay, I knew this was going to happen. I knew it was going to be loud. I knew it was going to be a lot of energy. I knew that this was really important to me. Acknowledging that, take a couple of deep breaths and saying, okay, Let's go back to my game plan. This is what I'm going to do. And so now all of a sudden you've taken a challenging situation, you've leaned into it, and you've made it something that's going to help you perform better. Um, and that, that, that phrase, embrace the suck, is the SEALs. I mean, that's Navy Special Operators. I mean, that's what they use. Um, and it's, I've been very fortunate over the last few years to, to spend some time in Coronado with, with the trainers and the people who work with the SEALs. And that's one of the things they teach. They teach a very simple process, which is pause, breathe, nudge, act. And that's the four-step process that they use, that they teach every SEAL. So if you think you're, you're on a mission, shit's going on all over the place, every single one of these guys, all they're doing is it's like, whoa, okay, let's just slow down, take a breath, nudge, then act, make a decision. Because, and, and in those situations, obviously the consequences of making the right versus the wrong decisions are extremely important and far more important than anything we would ever do in sport. So the way I look at it is that if that's good enough for them, it's probably good enough for any of my athletes. <laughs> I would say so. Yeah. And it's cool to hear too. And it's, I think it's important for athletes to hear because so many times I know I've been told that we need to not only just not just embrace the suck, but almost like repress the suck. Like everything needs to be positive, 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 positive. It's almost like negative thoughts should never exist. That's what I thought mental training was my whole athletic career, because that's what everybody had told me like, oh, don't worry about it. Just this should be the best day of your life. You get to compete. You finally get to compete. And 
it's one of those things that that's what I've learned the most from you. And that's why I love our conversations in the clinic is I learned that, Hey, it's not all about being positive. Bad shit happens. How do you handle it? That's how you move forward. That's what separates good from great, which if anybody's listened to the podcast, that's typically what I strive for. I don't want I don't want my athletes to be good. I want them to be great. That's that distinguisher between the two. I think. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's um, if you go into a scenario and you expect everything to go to plan and you expect everything to positive uh, to be positive, that's awesome until it isn't. <laughs> <laughs> it's Mike you know, Tyson it's, right it's, there. It's, yeah. yeah, exactly. It's the Mike Tyson thing. Everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the nose. And, and, and basically, that's the way I look at it. I mean, the way I look at it is I sort of take a slightly different approach, which is, hey, Let's accept the fact that things are going to go wrong and how are we going to respond as opposed to react to when things go wrong? Because responding means there's some cognition, there's some thinking, there's some planning that's gone into this. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas if you're reacting, uh, if, if, if you're an athlete, whether you're a fighter, a basketball player, a football player or whatever, and you're, you're now suddenly reacting as opposed to responding, I think you're in trouble. Because, you know, there, there is no thought, there is no plan, there is no attempt to execute something. You're flailing. And I'm sure in, in the business you're in, you see it all the time. The difference between a fighter who goes into the octagon and something doesn't quite go right, and all of a sudden they're reacting as opposed to responding, versus the athlete who goes in and goes, oh, okay, he tagged me, didn't expect that, but now I've, but I have prepared for that scenario so this is what I'm going to do. And, and I just think it's, it, it's really the difference. And, and honestly, Austin, your, your comment about good to great is exactly right. What I love doing is working with very good athletes and helping them become a little bit better. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that is basically the essence of the work I do. It's like I don't work with athletes um, typically. I mean, they're already really, really good. Yeah. <laughs> and, and they're like Marinetti. It's like I, I, want, to, I want to find that. Yeah, I, I want to be want the to 2%. That. Yeah, I want to find that. If I can find that, I, everything's going to fall into place. And I think that I can't train any harder. I can't sleep anymore. I can't recover any more effectively. Um, I can't do much more with my nutrition. But what about the six inches in my head? Can I do something there that perhaps can even amplify all of these other pieces that I'm doing at an elite level anyway. Well, and that's funny. So that's how I teach technique when I teach wrestling is what you were talking about is responding, not reacting. I, I tell every single one of my athletes, you should be able to write down a flow chart. You should be able to go through a flow chart of if somebody has a, we'll say a single leg on the wall, right? You're on the cage. Somebody has a single leg on you. You should have a flow chart of from they grab your leg and push you against the cage at least five different options with three different or four different steps through to be able to get off that cage or to get to an advantageous position. If you don't have at least four options, well, guess what? You're probably fucked (laughs) because they're going to put you on your ass because they're going to think of the option that you don't have in your flow chart and then put you there. And then what do you do then? Now you're in a spot, you're on your butt, you're a wrestler on your butt. That's where fighters lose. So if you can think in flow charts and have a plan, it's all about a plan. Once you have a plan, shit's easy. (laughs) <laughs> well, and I think to your point earlier too, Darren, um, I think that's what separates a lot of good athletes to the great, right? Is the responding, not reacting. Like I've noticed that be a bigger difference than any type of physical training that we do. You know, I have an athlete that could be a monster in the weight room, but then they're reacting to everything in the octagon when they get there versus the guy that 
you know, maybe his technique on everything in the weight room sucks, but he's got immaculate um, responses in the octagon and that yields him a lot more success. So um, I think you've been spot on with a lot of things that you say, but um, I think that was pretty nail uh, in the coffin right there. So one of the things I do in terms of for each one of my athletes, um, let, let, let's say they have an event, whether it's soft game, basketball game, fight. Um, one of the things that we have a process of working with them is we, we do this um, idea of, to take Austin's idea of like, here's my flow chart. So obviously you don't want them think, you know, that's through training camp. Right. They, they drill that, they drill it, they drill it, they drill it. And, and that's one of the processes I go through with my athletes on leading up to a competition. So whether it's game day or event day, minus three, two, or one, depending on what fits best with them, we'll sit down. They, they will write out that flowchart. They will write out just the, the language we use is their KPIs, their key performance indicators. What do they need to do really, really well come game time to give them the opportunity to be successful? That process of sitting down and writing it down in detail helps them remember and internalize exactly what they're going to try to do when they get to the game. Mm -hmm. It primes their brain for success. It really, really does serve as that purpose. Then when we get to game day minus one or game day, though that, that what was fairly long and fairly complicated gets net driven down in maybe three words. And those three words are what they're thinking about when their mind drifts to the competition on game day. And so when their mind drifts to the competition on game day or fight night, they will sort of, they accept it, they acknowledge it, they take a breath, then they think about those three things. They know what it is because they put all the mental work in, the schemas are there, their representations are there, and that just makes them relax, which also enhances their confidence. Um, and then what we do post-competition is we review based on those KPIs. So we're always... We're all, I mean, I, I work with a, a, a female soccer player actually from Denver who um, is the best player in the U.S. And she plays in France at the moment. And one of the things we always, like, it's funny. Now, and again, I know this is a little bit different than the fight game. But, she, you know, she played, you know, play, has had you know, two very big games in the last two weeks in France. And after each game, it's funny. I watched the games and, and I thought one game she was without a doubt the best player on me. And uh, her response was, I'm really disappointed with the way I played. It. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that, was, that was immediately after the game. But what we know is that immediately after an event that is very, very important to you, your emotions determine the way you evaluate what happened. And she was fixated on like one or two moments in the 90 minutes. When she went back and reviewed the game on tape and then looked at at, looked at the game through the lens of her KPIs going into the game, she texts back and said, wow, I played really well. <laughs> right? because, because that's 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 the way we tend to sort of, that's, you know, 24 hours after an event is not the right time to be offering an evaluation of how you performed. I mean, there's, there is a method to the madness of all the TV companies. I mean, they love, it doesn't matter the sport, right? They, they want to stick a microphone in front of a, an athlete or a coach immediately after an event when the emotions are at their most primal and most intense, because that's when people are most likely to say the most idiotic, stupid things. Oh yeah. If you give it 24 yeah. hours, people come back and it's a much more rational, objective, 
boring response to what just happened, which TV doesn't like. Well, Absolutely. even me, I've done that before where like I'm cornering a fight and we lost the fight and I go back and I watch it three times that night. And I'm like, I don't know where we lost. I, I have no idea. I don't know where we lost. This is bullshit. The judges are full of shit. And then I go back and watch it three days later and I'm like, oh yeah, we definitely lost that fight. Like, we fucked up. Right. That's a giant yeah, emotional response versus, yeah, like you said, a, a thorough analysis. Um, and Darren, I did want to say thank you um, for one thing because you work with the national women's soccer team. This might be the only podcast that my wife listens to because she's a huge <laughs> soccer head and she doesn't do any of the fighting wrestling MMA stuff. So I wanted to say thank you uh, in advance for that. Um, What's up, Mary? Yeah, right. Beforehand, um, when you were talking about the KPIs and the process that you go through with that, um, I'm just wondering because in motor learning and a lot of pedagogy, we go through the unconscious incompetent to conscious competence, right? Or the unconscious competence progression. Are you working through a, a version of that when you're working through down from the flow charts to the KPIs to the few words, or is that a thought in your head by any means? Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I mean, you know, it's funny that, 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 that it's interesting. The whole debate about, is it, do you want somebody to be unconsciously competent or do you want them to be consciously competent? Right. And what is the best? Um, you know, I, I, I've always been of the belief. Okay. So I believe that with many athletes who have great physical skills and physical tools, they don't think about their sport at all, right up to the point in their development where they suddenly are not, not being successful. And that's a really important moment because at that point, it's suddenly like, wow, it isn't enough to be the biggest, baddest dude in the room. I actually have to understand and think. So I think that's when we really begin to go that process of getting them to be consciously competent. Um, there, there are, well, I mean, I, I don't think there is anybody who is, who can be successful at the highest level who is just unconsciously competent. Because eventually you're going to compete against somebody who's consciously competent and they're going to come at you with a plan that you're not going to be able to successfully sort of handle. Yeah, so I do sort of work through that that sort of that process um, um, you know it's again I, I tend as you guys do you work with competent people so it really is that unconscious conscious continuum that probably is the determinant of who actually optimizes their physical potential um, yeah. and, I, and I'm firmly of the belief that it is the conscious competent who has the ability to find that two percent yeah. uh, I think the unconscious competent it's funny um, in all sports, as you go up up in the hierarchy, so it's no different than I remember. You know, you could have somebody who is just a physical freak, right? Wrestling. Let's take wrestling at the collegiate NCAA level, and they can beat everyone, right? And then they go up a, a step, and now all of a sudden they're wrestling internationally, and they come across some hairy behemoth from Iran or from. Because one of the stands, right? Yeah, yeah. Any of the stands. Stand. Any <laughs> of the stands. And they head off there and, and, they, and they get their ass put for the first time ever. And they are completely confused. Yeah. They have no idea because they, they're looking across the mat at this guy. And, you know, they're a chiseled specimen at the age of 23 or 24, straight out of the Olympic training center. Just, I mean, just unbelievable. And they're looking across at this like 33-year-old guy and thinking, oh, this is going to be over in about 35 seconds. And it is over in 35 seconds, but unfortunately not the way they were thinking. The other way. <laughs> and it's just like, it's that moment when you suddenly go, hmm, 
being the chiseled Adonis may not necessarily be the thing that's going to determine whether I win an Olympic gold medal. And I think that's a every athlete goes through that, right? I mean, some athletes, it happens when they're really young. Some athletes, it happens, you know, as they're just going up that, that, that talent pathway. Yeah. Um, A huge one for wrestling specifically is high school to college, right? mm -hmm. You know, especially Austin can speak to this too. Like in, in high school wrestling, it's easy to be the, baddest dude for you know 50 to 100 mile radius right yes and then you go to college and you're 29 out of 29 in a 20 foot radius so that that is <laughs> you know it's funny Alex you're going back to the Illinois days so in Steve's final year in his senior year Eric Siebert was a redshirt freshman yeah and yeah. so Eric I don't think lost at high school in Illinois mm-hmm. I mean I don't think he lost I mean I think he won I don't he's know a killer many. yeah so and I and I can remember him telling. So I started working with Eric because they were. I mean, Mark and Jim were really frustrated um, after Stephen moved on. And what what was really interesting, so Eric had like a. I mean, not not. I don't mean this in the literal sense. He had like PTSD, and the PTSD was his freshman year at Illinois because every day in the wrestling room, Johnson would say, "Eric, go with Steve." Yeah. Been there. And, and literally not every day, but, you know, Steve, would, Eric would come out with his patented pancake move that had, you know, pinned every kid in Illinois. And Steve would bat it away and go, oh, that was good. And then he'd pin him. <laughs> and so Eric, Eric would be like, oh, my God, oh, my God, I got pinned, I got pinned. I can't, I can't even be the number one guy in my weight class in the room, let right. alone. And, um, you know, it's, it, it's funny. It happens to everybody. It's, yeah. And it's more about what happens next Amen. Yeah. that determines whether or not you, you end up coming even close to fulfilling what you may be physically capable of. For sure. Oh, and you also see that going back to consciously competent, you see the people that are able to last longer in their careers, the people with more longevity are typically the consciously competent athletes because they can adapt. Mm-hmm. In my mind, just Amen. like strength conditioning, just like technique, mental, it's all about adaptation right? Being able to adapt to certain situations and being able to overcome them and or manage them. That's that's time and time again, you see that in every facet of sport. And the people, my favorite thing is like asking somebody, hey, can you explain that to me if I'm coaching them? Can you explain that to me? If they can't explain it to me, they don't actually get it. They just know how to do it. There's a big difference between the two. And that's if you're not able to explain how you manage your feelings on fight night, guess what? You if you come to, a, if you get to a title fight that you're not ready for, <laughs> you're fucked. Again, you're yeah. fucked. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's funny. I, I, I um, again, when I was at Illinois, the second program I worked with at the university was the baseball program. And okay. I ended up working with their pitching staff. And I can remember talking to the pitching coach and saying, you know, one of the things I think, and at that stage, I not really consulted with anybody, but just mm-hmm. reading the motor learning, mo- motor acquisition research. I said, you know, because he had this one guy who was just frustrating the hell out of him. He was exactly that guy. Like when things were going well, he was unbelievable. If things start going badly, it was like we needed to get three pitches up in me yeah. because he wasn't going to last. Yeah. And I said, send him to the high school team in, the, in you know, whatever high school in Champaign and get him to be their pitching coach and get him to teach those kids what you're trying to get him to understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because all of a sudden, it, it's so much harder to be the teacher than it is to be the student. And you have to have such a, a more in-depth understanding of what you're trying to do. Now, obviously, some people will have the ability to do that. Some people, and, and hey, let's be honest, there are some people who could do that great but can't pitch. Yep, they, right. they, 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 could, they could do, and that's why they become coaches. 
or become teachers because they're really, really good at explaining it, but they could never do it. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, it's uh, it swings around about. No, I think that that's a hugely powerful story. Like the, the power of teaching as a learning tool, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's so powerful. Yes. And that's quite honestly, like my introduction into strength and conditioning, I've told this story a couple of times on this podcast, but when we were at lacrosse, I started interning in the uh, sports performance center, right. As a, you know, intern coach with weightlifting and everything like this. And then all, all of a sudden in two months, the head trainer goes, all right, you're going to be teaching the internship class, how to go through the year. And I'm like, all right, well, I better figure it out for myself. Pause for a second. As an undergraduate, he's teaching graduate people. Yeah. (laughs) And so it was a, it was a shock, but then I came out the other end and I was so surprised at the proficiency that I had developed along the the lines of teaching and understanding. And then eventually down line, actually coaching. Same with my wrestling. Now, when I, when I help out the guys over at fight ready, I'm such a better wrestler now that I've been a coach for five years than when I was actually a college wrestler. Yeah. I can do shit. I couldn't even dream to do when I was in that college room, just yeah. because I get it now. And I have to explain it to my athletes and I That's know the, the steps. Old. I have a real flow chart. That's the old yeah. coaching strength, right? Everybody, yeah. every I always used is. to think it was just old man strength and that's not old man strength at all. It's just actually understanding what you're doing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, Darren. So working with so many different athletes and so many different types of athletes, what are some common tendencies that you see? through, through the gamut. Cause I know you've worked with everything from Olympic sprinters to NBA to NFL to college wrestlers. Are there common ten- like tendencies you see of people that in general, the masses would be able to get better at? Oh, absolutely. So let me answer in a slightly, slightly different way. Okay. So, pe- so because I work with lots of different sports, people will, will honestly, they'll often ask me, well, how do you do that? Yeah. And my, my response is 80% of it is the same, in my opinion. I mean, yeah. plus or minus. But, you know, the, the things that go into being able to develop and perform on the mental side, I think is very, there are some commonalities and some variables that go into it. The next 10% is you, you as the athlete, your personality, your tendencies, your traits. Um, and then the third piece of this, the other 10% is the sport. So because there are unique aspects of each sport. So obviously fighting is very different than playing soccer or playing golf, tennis. So that sport, personality, individual, and then this 80% thing all intertwined has to work for you to be able to be the best you can be. But the 80% is what the general population or all athletes should be working on anyway. And for me, I look at that 80% and I break it down into what the research tells us is really important. What the research tells us anecdotally and empirically and with experiments that really matters. So you begin to look at confidence. That's a key psychological variable that you can get better at and you can control. Emotional regulation. So your ability to regulate and control your emotions, particularly in stressful situations. That's an absolute critical variable. Motivation, whether or not you are more or less self-determined, intrinsic in your motivational style applied to the thing you're trying to get better. Um, We also look at it, your ability to um, control your thoughts and feelings and manage them most effectively, including your physiological arousal and your anxiety and your stress levels again. So when you begin to look at these things, these are all things that, again, the brain 
the brain doesn't really know it's wrestling or MMA or basketball or baseball. It's very much responding to what's actually being going in, on in and around it. It's just an electrical system and everything's taking place inside the head. So that's why I think that, you know, we know that if you're good at these things, that's going to enhance your development and performance. And then we layer on who you are as a person. And then we layer on or interject the sport itself and the demands of the sport. So if we, let's simple one, let's, let's take physiological arousal. If you're a golfer, you want to make sure that you're at the low end of the physiological arousal continuum, right? I mean, you don't want to be super hyperactive and your heart rate beating and, and you know, everything going on at hundred miles an hour. If you're a golfer, because you're trying to execute a close skill, a, a, you know, a really, really fine skill. If you're a wrestler you, or a MMA fighter, you got to be far further along that continuum. Now, you don't need to be so far at the, at the end of that continuum that, you know, you're out of control and that you're, you know, you're, you're, your heart rate's too fast, you, you know, everything else is too quick, but you definitely need to be far more physiologically aroused than if you're a golfer. So that's sort of how these, and, and some of us have a tendency to be where we place on that continuum. So recognizing that and being aware of that. But I think, you know, that th there are a lot of things which are common just to human performance. And then there are the personality pieces and the sport pieces that go into that as well. Well, yeah. And the more and more I listen to you talk about this, the more and more parallels I see between, you know, the strength conditioning process and the mental performance process, right? I would argue that strength conditioning is very similar where, you know, 60 to 80% are like kind of the nuts and bolts, strength, power, movement things like that. And then you add the layers of the individual and the sport. Um, so in that vein, um, on billion fighter recently, I've done kind of a coaching mentality series on our Instagram page. Um, and I feel like this is kind of a role that gets pushed onto strength coaches, almost like through a pseudo lens of you're the hype guy, you're the mentality guy, you're going to coach them on how they should think about challenge, or you should challenge them mentally and physically. And I feel like, again, strength conditioning coaches get pushed into this role. In your opinion, what are, you know, the responsibilities of somebody outside yourself or even like a head coach? What are the minimum that they can do or what should they be knowledgeable about in a mentality space? That's a great question. Because I mean, one of, one of the arguments you could say that, you know, it, strength and conditioning coaches have definitely taken on that role. And I think that's, that's very much a collegiate, uh, an artifact of the college system. Sure, and absolutely. I think it's probably a trickle-down effect from the football coaches who, you know, the reality is the strength and conditioning coach spends more time with the athletes than any of the other coaches. Right. Um, certainly, even if you have a mental performance uh, person, that individual isn't spending anywhere near as much time as the strength and conditioning coach. So I think coach education and getting coaches to understand some of these um, important constructs about how for example, how do you actually help an athlete become more confident? How do you actually help an athlete become more self-aware? How do you actually help an athlete um, begin to understand how to stay present and to regulate their thoughts and feelings? How do you actually help an athlete um, use visualization, use breathing, use the techniques that are mental skills? Um, I think all of that stuff is incredibly important for a strength and condition because I think, again, they have so many touch points with the athletes, yeah. more touch points than positional coaches, skills coaches, 
and mental performance coaches. So again, going back to one of the questions earlier, when this, how does this work best? I think you asked the question, Alex, is like, when's a good time to introduce it? When should you become aware of it? The ideal situation was where there is complete integration of the support staff. So everybody is talking to each other. And so the strength and condition goes, okay, so I saw this today. This is how I handle it. What do you think? Or the mental performance coach saying, hey, I was watching practice today and I saw this. Do you think we could do this? Or, you know, and or with the technique coach as well. So I think that that's when it works at the highest level, most effective when you have a, an integrated performance management team where everybody's in it for the right reasons. Every puts, everyone puts their egos aside. And it's that classic John Wooden quote of, you know, it's amazing what can be achieved when no one cares who gets the credit. And that's really the way, you know, the best support staffs I've worked with, that's definitely been the, the mindset and the philosophy. The worst support staffs I've worked in is, is when taking credit became the driver for people. Yeah. And so territorial and, you know, it became a mess because just people weren't helping each other, which means ultimately the athlete wasn't getting the best service that he or she deserves. Yeah, in the, it becomes in the about same, the ego. Yeah, yeah and in the same vein, how do you convince a coaching staff? Because that's a big thing in the sport we're in. It's Our sport is all bravado. <laughs> it's it's work harder, work harder, work harder. Don't even think about the mental side. Just just try to be as strong and as in shape as possible. And if you break, you break. How do you convince a, like to implement a coaching staff to bring on a mental coach in general? Um, yeah, you know there are obviously some sports that have adopted this and, and and the transition into having people working on staffs or working with athletes is very easy. So when you look at golf, tennis, I mean, Tiger Woods worked with somebody from the age of seven or eight. Oh, really? Um, I didn't know that. That's awesome. Yeah. So, I mean, you look at those type of sports and it's just, that's just the way it is. Yeah. You look at, uh, but I don't think it's very common in particularly the the main sports in this country and Mm -hmm. sports such as MMA, I can't imagine it's that common at all. But I would argue that a head coach and somebody who has worked developing the, 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 the best coaching support system for his or her athletes has to recognize that the mental piece is really, really important. And now how they choose to engage in that process and who they choose to engage with, I'm not sure how that process works in the world that you guys live in. Yeah. But I know in the world that sort of I live in, yeah, I, I've st- I've stopped bothering with that question. My, my, <laughs> what what I, I do, so what I do now is if I if I'm talking to somebody and they start pushing back, I go fine, and I move on to somebody who isn't pushing back, yeah. because ultimately the people who don't push back, the, those are the ones that are ultimately I think are going to be the most successful. Because, you know, you don't, I don't want to be fighting you. I'm not going to fight you as to my value and my importance. But the one thing I would say to the coach, go and ask your fighters the last time your fighter lost or had a bad day or didn't perform the way they thought, ask them one simple question or use one word, why? And many, many times I, I would guess has nothing to do with the way they felt physically, the way they felt technique-wise. It was like, I just wasn't there today. I just didn't have it today. And then you dig a little bit deeper. What is that? Well, you know, and before you know it, you're like, oh, guess what? It was mental. Well, it's funny because that I do ask that question. Like when I'm at wrestling and I, I notice they're having a bad practice, I'm like, hey, what, what was up? Why, why didn't you feel it? Then that's exactly what they say every time. They're like, oh, I just wasn't there that day. 
Yeah. I'm like, that's, that's not physical at all. It's not that you're tired. It's not that anything that we can do on the physical side, it's if you're not there, you're not there. But if you're not there at a practice, you have 10 practices a week. If you're not mentally there for seven of them, you're losing out on 30% of your practices. Well, it's interesting if you look at it. Now, I'm not suggesting for one moment that there isn't a huge physical piece. There isn't a huge right. technique piece. All I'm suggesting is that there is a mental piece. Mm-hmm. And for each athlete, it's going to be a greater or lesser. Uh, and, and for some, maybe it's just the working with the coach as opposed to working individually. And I've definitely had that where, mm-hmm. you know, I've met with a, you know, a coach has brought me in to work with an athlete and because the coach felt the athlete needed it. And I've walked up to the coach and said, the worst thing you could do at the moment, particularly depending on where we are building up to a big competition, I say the worst thing you can do now is bring me in. Bad time. Because there's some, because sometimes there's a regression before the progression. Because you know, sometimes saying, okay, we really need to think about this. Yeah. And and if the time, if that isn't in the right sequence, then that's not necessarily going to help with the development of the performance. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a really, really interesting one. I mean, it's, it, it, I think as as people become more aware of the mental piece and how to actually instruct it and how to teach it and how to create a culture and a mindset and to do all these things, I think it's going to become more commonplace. But I would argue in a sport like MMA, the way that you're describing it, Austin, is it is a huge competitive advantage if somebody makes a leap and says, we're going to do this and we're going to do it the best we possibly can. Oh, absolutely. 100%. Well, that's, I mean, Bo, it, well, I was going to say we had Bo Sandoval on. He was, I think, one of our first guests. So he was the head of strength and conditioning at the UFCPI. And I'm pretty sure his direct quote, quote was, my job is basically useless if they don't have the mental side figured out. Mm-hmm. And well, it's think, true. Think, so think about it this way. So go back to the series because there's a lot of similarities in terms of what they do and what you guys do. Mm-hmm. If you go to Buds, since they started Buds, the one statistic that has remained the same is how many get how many get through Buds. 85% drop out. Now it doesn't matter. And, and over time, and it's all post 9-11. So what happened with 9-11 was that all of a sudden we were fighting wars on lots of different fronts and they needed more special operators. So they started increasing the number of um, classes going through BUDS. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the number who failed to get through BUDS stayed exactly the same. Then they realized, okay, we need more SEALs. We need more special operators. So they established a pre-BUDS training center in Lake Forest in Chicago, right? So now the, the guys who are going to BUDS are the best prepared in the history of Navy special operators. They've had everything. They've gone through all the training. The one number that has not changed is the number who make it through. It's still 15%. So when you ask people down in Coronado, the people who do the training, what is the variable that determines who makes it and who doesn't? And they go to the same place. It's mental. And so now they've started doing training in Lake Forest and in Coronado where they are teaching very pretty basic mental skills, because I don't think it needs to be overly complicated, that will help these candidates get through butts. So whenever I talk to somebody who's really adamantly against that mental piece or for some reason are really reluctant, I go, you know what? If it's good enough for them, it's probably good enough for you to at least explore it. Yeah. 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 I mean, you may not necessarily agree, but but ultimately you only need to sit down with a great athlete in any sport 
for a long period of time and you suddenly realize everything they're talking about is mental yeah. or emotional. Um, and again, that is in no way to belittle or knock down a hierarchy about how, it, how important it is to train appropriately, to have the appropriate nutrition, sleep, recovery, sports medicine care, you know, maybe even sometimes chiropractic care. So, you know, it's, hey. that, it, <laughs> it's nah, yes. you know, it's, it's just more about elevating the mental piece to be, Hey, it needs to be integrated. And there could be some athletes who need more of it. Some who need less of it. Some need more physical attention. Some need more nutrition. You know what, when you get to that level, it's that individualization of the training program and the approach, but recognizing all of these pieces play a role in getting that, fighter in this instance to be the best he or she can be so that they when they walk out into that arena they have the best they feel because that's the other thing right so all of these pieces together means your confidence is higher because you feel your preparation was as good as it could possibly be and whether or not you're playing in the nba the nfl or in the mma i would probably argue that that is the most important source of confidence going into a big event, big game, big fight, is I feel I am the most prepared I've ever been. And if you're not that person and you don't feel that prepared, when you walk on and the the, the announcer introduces you, that little doubt you had is now just fucking flooding over your head. And that's when you lose very quickly and it's not nice. 100%. Yeah, and... Again, earlier, I think you hit it on the head. Like, this is like a sexy topic that everybody likes to talk about, right? The mentality piece, how strong are you mentally and this and that. But nobody really likes to get dirty with or like see an actual mental performance coach or get into the technical information on it. So, well, I think the other thing is, Alex, you just mentioned a really good thing here. And this is a thing that I always tell people it isn't about being tough. Yeah. And every athlete I work with is tough. The sports may, I mean, you can you know, get into big arguments about, you know, I've always said that wrestling, I mean, I've never seen anything like it. I've never experienced anything like it. I mean, you know, I, I mean, the whole idea, I remember in Illinois, they used to have the t-shirts, seven minutes of hell and, yeah. you know, and all that sort of stuff. And, and you know, yeah. when they do that thing leading into a major championship and they, you know, one versus three and they manipulate. I mean, I, I remember Marinetti, you know, going into Iowa City where they would, you know, he would wrestle, he would wrestle Eric first. And then Seth Brady, the heavyweight, would wrestle him in the second period. And then Ernest Benyon would wrestle him in the third period. And I, I used to think, God, can you think of anything fucking worse? <laughs> I mean, you know, you're, you're wrestling a fresh guy who's, you know, your weight class, so that was even. And then they bring the heavyweight in, so he's 220, 215, and you're 150. And he just pounds the fucking shit out of you. And then you bring in somebody... You know, like maybe a lighter weight class or you're bringing somebody who's eight pounds heavy and who's quicker than you. Yep. And, you know, you've got it. So, I mean, I've always said that, you know, but 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 I would say that's, you know, that the ability to be tough and to get through that and to be resilient, that's a prerequisite. Yep. Everybody's yeah. got to have that. I don't care who you are. I mean, you know, the NFL guy that Austin and I work with, training camp is miserable. It yep. is horrible. It is terrible if you're not resilient and tough you're not going to get through it my approach to mental performance is the the key word is performance there's so many other things that would be like me looking at strength and conditioning coaches oh all you do is teach people how to lift a lot of weight right it's 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 (laughs) it's it's this to me that's the similarity is or that's the same thing. It's like 
yeah, I can lift a lot of weight. Now, I'm completely inflexible and I can't move laterally and I can't do this, mm. but um, I can lift an awful lot of weight. It's like you know, on the mental side, I can run through brick walls. <laughs> Good. That's great. <laughs> I mean, that's what awesome. Next? Right. Yeah. What, what, what's next? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's, so that's one thing that you see all the time with, especially like we've, we talked about, we've worked with our shared NFL player and something that I love about working with him is that he's so intelligent in certain situations, right? Mm-hmm. It's not just he'll, we, I think we talked about it recently. It might've been today. It's he asks the right questions. I think that's an extremely important part for an athlete and, and getting into the mental side of thing to understanding being consciously competent is asking the right questions, not just random questions, not just questions to annoy people, but the right questions that allow you to understand. And the more understanding you have on a topic, talk about building confidence, typically the more confident you're with that topic. Well, I also think the other thing about asking questions is it demonstrates ownership. Yeah. I mean, if, if, if an athlete just shows up, does exactly what you want them to do, I don't think they've transitioned across the threshold of owning what's going on. Mm-hmm. And then when they get into the octagon, I would imagine that often this, this is the athlete who's looking at you for help when things aren't quite working the way they'd anticipated because they, they've really just done what you've asked them to do. Yeah. Right. They become that's, dependent. That's the athlete that says they want to be yeah. plugged into a controller when they're in there and you're yelling combos at them to hit instead of saying, like, to, like you said, you should be able to say five words. You should be able to give yeah. more external cues and big picture ideas, then, hey, two, one, two, two, one, two, stuff like that. Yeah. You shouldn't have to say that. You should say, I, hey, I, keep, your, I, keep your hands up. I will say that um, one of my favorite stories involved wrestling. We, we were wrestling, I don't know, it was Michigan, Michigan State. And Jim Heffernan was on the, on the mat coaching. And uh, whoever, the, whoever the Illinois wrestler was, so Jim's going, take him to your left. Take him to your left. Take him to your left. <laughs> And I'm sat there as the Illinois kid is taking him to his right. So, <laughs> so classic coaching, it's like, sure, I have a t-shirt. Jim there goes, your other left. Take him to your other left. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh. Yeah, and I'm a huge, exactly like Austin was saying, but like, especially in wrestling, if I as a coach have to yell something out or an opportunity that's there for the athlete to recognize it, it's already passed, right? Yeah. Like, we've missed the opportunity there, so... I, I totally agree with your you know, your like autonomy or your independence versus dependence, right? So and, and that comes through practice and time and yeah. time in the time in, the, in training and training camp and you know it's it's it you know it it, it takes you know it's it, it's it's a pursuit, it's a path, yeah. it's a journey, it's it's hard, um, you know, particularly when you start asking. And it's funny. I'm sure we've all experienced this when you start asking athletes questions and they just have like a blank look on their face. And, and you suddenly realize that I don't think anybody's ever asked him a question. Right. Yeah. You know, it's like when you say, what are you thinking when this is going? And they go, I'm not. Oh, okay. Great. Yeah. My favorite is I ask them like, oh, how did that exercise feel? Nobody, and nobody's ever asked them that before. Yeah. And they look at me like I, I'm like giving, I mean, I'm giving them like an ACT right there. They don't, right. they, it's just a blank stare. And I'm like, I just want to know what you're feeling. Like, do you feel it in your hips? Do you feel it in your trunk? Like, are we feeling the right stuff? It's funny. And obviously, you know, the the, the whole, it's funny, you know, with the way that elite level sport, particularly team sports, you know, they have the, in the morning, you know, athletes get up on the wrap and they have to say, where is it sore on a scale of one to 10? Mm -hmm. And and I think it's sort of been done to death a little bit, but I can, you know, when you're there and you say, well, how sore is it on a scale of one to 10? And and they look at you, they go in, 
I, I don't know what that scale means. I mean, what does that scale mean? So you actually have to educate them and say, well, you know, five, 10 is you can, you can't walk. Yep. Five is your feeling. But you have to give them the descriptors because they just don't know because no one's really asked them. They've never really thought about it. That's the funniest thing in healthcare is when you ask somebody on a scale of zero to 10, where's your pain at? And they say a 10, but you poke, like you poke it and they move and it moves just fine. And I'm like, a 10 mean I need to, I need to call 911 right now. <laughs> like I, you need to be in an ambulance if you're at a 10, you're dying. Well, or like, oh, the, and then they say, oh no, it's a nine. And I'm like, did we not learn anything? <laughs> well, well, I, I, I must be that person because every time I'm doing your workouts, I'm like, it's a 10. It's, it's a 10. <laughs> well, and I, I think at MMA, we have the opposite too, where guys think they're so yeah. tough and they have a broken hand and they're like, well, it only hurts a two out of 10 when I punch. And then you watch them punch and they like barely touch and they're like cringing. And it's like, well, that, that, that gets, that gets back to the fact that it's so much more than mental toughness, right? So mental yeah. toughness is I've broken my hand and I'm going to keep punching. Yeah. Now it could be mental stupidity. But stupidity and toughness could be the same thing, right? I mean, it's a, and, and I think it's just that evolution of our understanding of how to deal with elite level athletes. It used to be, you know, I mean, it, even, you know, it's like we used to lord athletes who were able to play a game or, you know, fight through a broken leg or something like that. And now it's like, okay, that's really not very smart. I mean, Cal Ripken. Yeah, he had the most, most games played. I remember I was, Cal Ripken was my favorite baseball player. And I remember that was one of the things that got him into the hall of fame is that he had the longest streak of never of like played yeah. games in the MLB of anybody. And yeah. that was lauded. And when in reality, he probably played through like 15 different injuries that he probably might've had a better statistical career and had more impact on the team. If he took two days off. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, it's, so I think the overall thing, whether it's, and, and you guys are obviously doing it every day, is educating the athlete to understand what's in their best interest from a development perspective and what's going to give them the best opportunity to be successful in the performance that they're trying to execute. And I think that's the ongoing battle. You know, yeah. I, uh, again, I was being somewhat facetious by saying, well, I just don't bother to engage in that battle anymore. But there is an element of truth. It's like, you know, if, if, if you don't believe that that's important, that's fine yeah. to coaches. But I will tell you that I, I have not met many athletes who, when you sit down with them, you start talking about the mental side of the game, that they don't go, oh, thank goodness, somebody actually understands. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, it's all about just uh, the other thing is trust, too. That's yeah. probably a very big thing, like, like it is for healthcare, right? You got to trust the person that's going to be working on your body. You got to trust the person that's getting inside your brain. Like yeah. that has to be a huge factor. And is there any ways that you're able to build that trust with athletes, especially because I know you do a lot of remote work where you're not able to see uh, them in person? Yeah. So it's funny if you, if you look at the literature on counseling psychology, clinical psychology, and what predicts a successful um, treatment, mm -hmm. the, the most important um, variable is, is, the fit between the counselor, the clinician, and the patient. Yeah. Um, and I think I emphasize that piece. So I am me, good, bad, and indifferent. And so when I meet with an athlete, I'll say to them, you know, you, th there are lots of people who do, for example, what I do. The skill set, you know, isn't necessarily um, that unique. There are lots of people, but it comes down to fit. And if you connect, if you have a emotional connection with me if you think i can help you then it's much more likely that you're going to be successful and this relationship is going to be successful is if you don't feel it but i mean um 
So I, so I always, and I think it's just record. I mean, elite level athletes, are, they have pretty sensitive bullshit um, leaders, I found. Yeah. I mean, you know, they're, they're too focused and they're too um, used to having people around them who greater or lesser extent blow smoke up their ass. Yep. So I think the the yeah, good ones, sort of, yeah, they get to the point where they 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 know fairly quickly whether or not you know you you have any, you add any you're an added value, um, and I think that that's that's an important piece. Yeah. Uh, but you know, I'll, I'll be honest. I mean, and I've got more like this as as I've got grouchy in order. I also use that as an opportunity to interview the athlete. Yeah. So I don't want to waste my time on somebody who goes, oh, yeah, this is great. I think this would be really good. And I realize that they're just not going to do any of the work. Yeah. And if they're not going to do any of the work, then what's the point? Alex, you see why me and Darren get along? No, yes. I I've said those. I've said those exact words before. I'm like, I'm me. I'm authentic. Like, you don't like me. I don't really give a shit. Just don't work with me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. But that's the number one thing is, and I feel like in all of our fields, it's just authenticity. It's being well, able to be you- yourself. I think when you're dealing with elite level performers or people are striving to be elite, I think that's really important. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm not suggesting that working with general population is not important, mm-hmm. but maybe there's more, there's more, there's a bigger margin for error. Yeah. I mean, I think yeah, that that's got a little wiggle room. It's not, it's the, the stakes aren't as high either. Typically. Yeah. So you yeah. got that wiggle room that you can deal with. No. I totally agree. And uh, Darren, I know we've had you for about an hour here and I uh, hope we can, uh, I'm begging you if we can ask some more questions, if that's still all right with you or if you have time. Sure. Yep. Oh, absolutely. Okay. So we've talked about um, coaches being educated. I know you have some experience in that space, like head coaches, whether the MMA coaches, strength conditioning coaches, healthcare professionals, where do we get this information, right? The, I mean, I've been fortunate enough to have a master's degree in, you know, coaching psychology for lack of a better term. But where would you go or seek out this information on mental performance coaching or how you can best take action in it if you're a head coach or strength conditioning coach? I mean, I would argue that there is a that's a great question and that there is a dearth of, of quality content out. Yeah. Um, I, I think that what's happening with a lot of national governing bodies, they're beginning to recognize the importance of the psychology of coaching and they're putting more resources into it. Um, I know that you know, a couple of the sports that, um, are more aware of um, that that's what they're trying to do. <laughs> but it's, it, it's a battle because, it, yeah. you know, it's funny. I mean, you, 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 the, the person who's typically in charge of those programs was a coach. Where they feel most comfortable is the technical stuff or the physical stuff or the tactical stuff. So that's where they tend to – I remember when I, worked, I started working for U.S. Soccer and they had all these coaching schools, and I think it's got better. But when I started working with them, they gave me like an hour out of a week <laughs> and I'll be like, what? But, but, and it's so funny that I have friends from, I still have great relationships with a number of coaches who were in that first ever course that I taught who literally have cut, uh, you know, came up to me and said, can we talk to you? Because we're going to spend this entire week doing on field, technical, tactical drills that we've known for 10 years, because that's what they want to teach us. What we want to do is work on how do you actually manage a team? How do you create a culture? How, how do you deal with difficult players? How, how do you actually manage your own emotions on the sideline? How do you, you know, how do you do all these things which are all under the rubric of you know, coaching psychology? So I think that, you know, I, I, I think that you know, the, the, the master's degree that you took is, is the optimal way to go about enhancing your skill set as a coach is by actually 
taking a formal coaching psychology, applied psychology class course that you can actually learn this and then getting mentors and people who can provide ongoing support. Um, Again, coaching is a profession. You know, it basically is a profession of teaching. So learning how to be a really good teacher, taking courses, seeing it as something that is really an important part of your professional development. I think that's the key piece. That's the key piece. You know, it's funny, you go to coaching conferences and I don't know what it's like in and, and it could very well be that the MMA world has, has a different approach. But you, know, you go to coaching conventions in all sports and you'll have the on-field or on-court sessions and it's packed. There are thousands of youth coaches, college coaches watching you know, an NBA coach or an NFL coach deliver an on-field session. And then you'll have a breakout session on some aspect of psychology coaching. And there'll be 25 people in the room but the key thing, the funny thing about it is those 25 people are all head coaches at big time division one programs because they've worked it out. That's the stuff yeah. they want to listen to, engage in, interact with their peers. I've had some of the best experiences of my life when suddenly you realize there's 12 people in a room, but they're the 12 most storied individuals at the convention. And we end up just creating a circle and start bouncing ideas off of each other as to how to deal with some of the challenges that are common to all of their programs. Yeah, that's 100% right. And I feel like at a lot of those conferences, it's confirmation bias, right? Like we're good at the technical tactical stuff. Let's learn more about the technical tactical stuff. And so it's like it's uh, on repeat. But where you're saying people that figure out the actual value is in the stuff that we're not doing well or that we don't. You can only learn how to teach people how to squat so many times. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting if you look. If you look at baseball, is a really interesting sport for this. Yeah. So, and, and, and basketball is going this way very, very quickly, and probably the NFL. But if we take baseball, mm-hmm. one of the things that has happened in baseball in the big leagues is the game is absolutely driven by analytics. No manager makes many decisions. They don't make decisions. And what's happened there is so you don't need, or the belief is, rightly or wrongly, the seventy-two-year-old big league manager who's been around the game for 50 years. Right. You've now got managers who are 36 who finished playing two years ago who have an ability and affinity to connect with the players and to create a culture that enables the players to be successful in the places that the analytics place them. In. Right. Yeah. You see what happens. You see it with Cliff at the Cardinals. That's everybody. Like when one of my guys is Sean, he's one of the linemen for the Cardinals. Cliff Kingsbury, every single person in that room that plays on that team loves Cliff, every single one. And he can connect mm-hmm. with the athletes. He knows the data, but they, he's a guy that he's a player's coach, which is this stigma that people think is a bad thing, but he knows the psychology. I don't know if he knows psychology, but he's able to connect and lead to better outcomes, which we saw for the first nine games. And that was most of, mostly connection. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think people are becoming much more aware that this is the key thing. I mean, yeah, and it comes down to who do you want to play for? Yeah. yeah. And who do you want to play with? I mean, that's, it be, it's becoming much, much more. I mean, you know, and I think that that's all around this whole idea of just understanding the human condition, understanding your individuals, understanding the, the environment, understanding the context. It doesn't mean that you aren't demanding. It doesn't mean that you're not, um, you, you know, demand responsibility and accountability. It just means you have an ability to connect. Your emotional yeah. intelligence is high. You're exactly. empathetic. You get it. 
you get them and you get what we're trying to do. Yeah. And I think that's kind of the new era of coaches that are, are all those things that you think of with a good coach or with a head coach or the, again, the word that you brought up that I say a lot is toughness, right? You have those coaches, but now you add a layer of emotional intelligence where they can connect or they've been in the same shoes as the players, or they can at least sympathize in those shoes. Um, I think that's the the next level of the next era that we see coming around. Like you said, younger well, coaches coming in. I think, you know, and again, it's, the, the, you know, age, I mean, we gravitate to the idea that younger coaches have the ability to do this because I think there's an element of ageism there. Yeah. But, you know, you, you've got some coaches who are older, who just have this. They just, yeah. they, they, yeah. they've always had it. I mean, I think yeah, that yeah. that's, you know, that that's the other thing. It's it's not an age thing. It's it's an experiential thing and it's a skill set. Wow. And um, I think that that's what's evolving and changing in the coaching profession at the highest levels is people awesome. are just recognizing that this is more important than necessarily some of the things that traditionally have been seen as the most important piece. Well, absolutely. And I, I, I have a little thing in my head where I go back and forth on, on strength and conditioning, but like sometimes I think the biggest value from strength and conditioning is exactly what you said earlier, that the athlete is confident in their strength and conditioning, mm-hmm. right? I have an athlete that's completely physical, physically able, and yes, we're maintaining their body for injuries, and yes, we're enhancing performance in some capacities, but it's more important that they believe that time is important than they actually spend the time with lifting weights. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, well and- I, uh, yeah. The other thing that you were saying is like uh, one of my mentors in life, uh, he's a chiropractor in Ohio. And he, he always says, he's like, people don't care how much, you know, until they know how much you care. Mm-hmm. We're seeing that with all of the, like you said, doesn't be young coaches, but most of the coaches in major sports, their athletes know that they care about them. Mm-hmm. That's the biggest indicator of success. If you look at most coaching, like most coaches that are successful right now, it's their athletes know that they absolutely, the coaches care about them. Number one thing, everything else. It's an afterthought because you're an athlete. You can fucking go out there and you're going to do great. You're going to do a great job anyways. Typically, you've been an athlete your whole life. But if somebody can increase your confidence to bring it kind of full circle, if you have that confidence in that person that they have what's best for you in mind, you're going to want to play for that person. You're going to want to compete. You're going to want to perform. And typically, you perform better. Yeah. yeah. And in that, in that same vein, Austin, as we talk about like um, somebody that you want to play for or you know that your coaches care, and I'm curious to get your opinion on this too, Darren, is the whole, you know, quote unquote, buy-in type of discussion that I've kind of been aware of is like, in my experience, there's no quicker way to get athletes to write you off than telling them point blank, they need to buy in, right? If I tell you, you need to buy in the athletes, like, oh, you're selling something all of a sudden, right? So it's like, how, and again, what's your kind of thoughts on the buy-in type of thing? And like, I've had a lot more success when I, again, show that I care and reemphasize the program. And then they buy in subconsciously without the quote unquote, go buy in type of pitch. So I think what you're talking about there is how do you develop trust? Sure. Yeah. 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 And I think you develop trust by being authentic. I think you develop trust by being competent. I think you develop trust by being confident in your skill set. I think you develop trust on being able to relate to the app. And I think it's an organic process. Anybody who would say to me, you need to buy in, and if you don't, you're not going to be successful. I think that that individual has already set that athlete up for failure and has set the you as the person who said that, you've given yourself an out. Because if, if, the, if the athlete is successful, it's because he bought in. If the athlete isn't successful, 
is because he didn't buy it. And it's yep. the worst type of coach. It's the self-fulfilling prophecy coach. And I, I've, I've, I hate that. And I hate when you see it. And I hate when it plays out in front of me. It's just absolute bullshit. So the way I've always looked at it is it is about developing trust. Trust takes time. It has to be authentic. It has to be relationship-based. And it has to be organic. And that's, and, and, you know, there's no timeline on that. But at some point, you know, the athlete and the, and the coach cross a threshold and it's, you know, we're in a good place. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of want to end it there. That was fantastic. That's a good ender. Yeah. Right. yeah, that was the best answer to a question that I never saw coming. That was great. Um, Darren, if people want to get a hold of you, where would they do that? Oh, they don't do that, Austin. <laughs> Good talk. Good talk. Do you have My an Instagram? I don't even that know. Do you exactly. have an Instagram? I do not have an Instagram. Great. All right. I like you more Perfect. and more as we continue this conversation, Darren. It's amazing. So if people have questions, funnel them to me and I will ask Darren. There we go. That will work. Perfect. Be subtle, Austin. We don't. We don't want to drive this one. <laughs> um, I, yeah. I mean, I. I mean, you know. I mean, I know you're going to edit this. So, it, I mean, in all honesty, yeah. I, I. I really should do a better job at that, but um, I don't. <laughs> oh, you're good. Oh, great. That's, yeah. I uh, think and, that's, re- that's authentic. Exactly. Right? That's how it should be. So, if you guys got, if you have any questions, shoot them to our DMs and our Instagram, and I'll be able to forward them on to Darren. But. As always, this is Building a Fighter. If you have any sort of strength conditioning needs, we have nine different programs on our online, on our buildingafighter.com, as well as custom programs and a low back course if you want to strengthen up that low back, if you do have a history of low back pain and or injuries. So that course is all available as well as all the programs at buildingafighter.com. If you have inf- or questions for me or Alex, our information is in the show note per usual. And as always, it's Dr. Austin Shane. Alex Friedman. And you, Darren. Oh, me, Darren Treasure. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> and we are out. Thank you.